0: Hello, and welcome to A Smart Financial Plan, where we interview the best and brightest in financial planning research on their studies and the best practices financial planners can use with their clients. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Sarah Acevedo and Dr. Chris Browning on their research regarding client psychology and how that affects portfolio withdrawal rates in retirement. One of the great struggles planners can face is when their client's personality comes into conflict with what the financial plan tells us is going to make or break their plan. This research from, can help planners identify clients who are likely to deviate from their retirement plan and what planners can do to help alleviate those risks. Well, Dr. Browning, Dr. Aspeto, thank you both for being here today. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, I know I've read a lot uh, of, of both of your work, I think, at this point, uh, since it's uh, some of the latest and greatest. Thank well, you so thank much you for me. having us.
1: Yeah thanks for having us.
0: Well it's great to have you both. Uh, With that in mind, uh, as far as uh, your research goes, uh, can you, you, before we get there, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, uh, Dr. Acevedo, where you are, uh, what you do?
1: Uh, Thank you Daniel. So I have been at Texas Tech for about four years now. I'm a professor here, an assistant professor and director of the Life-Centered Financial Planning Graduate Certificate Program that we have. And I teach a variety of things, uh, communication and counseling and retirement and the technology course at times. And prior to that, I was at Virginia Tech teaching. And prior to that, I was a full-time practitioner at, at an RIA up north in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I have practice background plus research and teaching and I, I love all of it. I love financial planning and integrating the, the practice background I have along with my research and
0: teaching focus today. Sure. Dr. Brown.
2: Yeah. Uh, so my name is, is Chris Browning. Um, I've been at Texas Tech since the fall of 2013. So academically, I, I got my Ph.D. from this program uh, at Texas Tech University um, after finishing that PhD in, in a past life, I, I was uh, in academics under the accounting uh, umbrella. So I went on to be the accounting department chair at a small university uh, in, in Oklahoma. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, coming back here in 2013 was kind of the end goal uh, for me and really felt fortunate because it's, it's kind of an odd thing uh, for someone that gets their PhD from a program to get to come back and be a part of the faculty um, of that program. You know, since then, I have really kind of focused research on uh, retirement spending decisions and some of the things that affect how people think about those decisions. Um, uh, You know, more recently, I've moved into some administrative roles, uh, some programming stuff at the department. Uh, I serve as the undergraduate program director. I'm also the associate chair for the department. Uh, and run a pretty cool program called Financial Planning Academy. And so, you know, when you come knocking to do something like this and kind of get out what university programs and researchers are doing uh, in relation to that, this field, it's kind of right at my alley because one of the things I do with um, the, the high school program is, is really try to promote this profession uh, to the next generation of talent uh, and just let them know how great um, the, the degree programs are and how great the career opportunities are um, in this profession. So all this kind of stuff like that, uh, all this kind of stuff like this is the stuff that I really enjoy doing. And, and again, just really appreciate the opportunity, uh, for Dr. Acevedo and I to, to join you today.
0: Well, and it really is a pleasure to have you both. So Dr. Browning, what is this research called and succinctly, what was it about?
2: Yeah. So, uh, the paper's called the psychology of portfolio withdrawal rates. And, and just to give you a, a, a brief history, Um, looking at some of the retirement spending decisions that that we see in large nationally representative data sets uh, was puzzling when when we started addressing these questions. You hear so much in the media about people being underprepared for retirement and people overspending um, out of their resources. And I don't want to discount the fact that that a lot of those things are probably true, but we saw this new phenomenon uh, from the data that showed Uh, that people were actually really conservative with regards to how they used uh, their accumulated resources, especially in relation to the goals that probably motivated their savings to begin with. Uh, And so we started exploring um, different paths uh, with regards to maybe what was causing uh, the observations that we were seeing in in the data. And so we decided we wanted to look at um, kind of the combined expertise of what Dr. Acevedo was doing and what I was doing and, and look at how psychology and personality characteristics uh, influence these decisions, and, and really found some, some interesting things about um, how the, the decisions that people make are, are influenced um, and related to uh, the psychology and personality characteristics of the people making the decision, so. Sure. Well
0: dr. exbeto, I mean, you you have more of a psychology background, obviously you've written and and researched a lot in financial planning in general, but uh, you know, as Dr. Browning indicated, he's really interested in retirement income decisions and that sort of thing. So what made this project interesting for you? Well,
1: what made it interesting was a really unique uh, opportunity to collaborate with Dr. Browning and combine our research interests into one paper. So I came to Texas Tech and I knew a little bit of his background and I had uh, looked at psychology and saving behavior in my dissertation. And when I got here, it was one of the, the things that was top of mind Is well. Dr. Browning and I could collaborate and bring together this psychological approach to portfolio withdrawal rates because it hasn't it hasn't been done uh, before.
0: So, Dr. Acevedo, you're well known for research and financial planning related to psychology, but what made this particular research project interesting for you?
1: What made this project interesting to me is the opportunity to collaborate with Dr. Browning as I entered Texas Tech and really combine our research interests. And in my dissertation at uh, that I wrote at Kansas State University, I had... Analyzed a model that looked at psychology and saving behavior within an older adult population. So it was a natural transition to think about well, what about the withdrawal phase? And in examining the literature, you know, I couldn't see that as psychological approach had been taken yet. And when Dr. Browning and I started collaborating and talking, we agreed that this could be a really neat area of study that we can sort of spark and start and that was really the impetus behind it.
0: Sure. I mean, just just from your perspective as researchers who did the literature review, looked around the landscape and whatnot, what did you feel like was really missing uh, within the existing research?
1: You know, it was the behavioral approach. As Dr. Browning mentioned, there's a lot of research in the portfolio withdrawal draw rate space surrounding technical factors such as asset allocation and and time horizon and and things like that, but very little about personal behavioral mechanisms that affect and contribute to portfolio decisions, which are really spending decisions uh, in retirement. So there's a lot of literature around the psychology of spending and saving, but nothing that specifically looked at that distribution phase. Dr. Browning, anything to add there?
2: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, those, those are great, great holes um, that, that you're discussing. And, and you know, that, I think that's the transition that we're all kind of looking at um, academically in the professional world is, you know, this, this profession is a lot softer um, than, you know, maybe the, the way it's been viewed historically. And, and working with people and understanding what makes people tick is so important that, to the value that we add in the relationships that we have. Um, with our clients, and so one of the things that that I always thought was kind of interesting about this question is that, well, really, how people spend out of their accumulated resources is related to their risk preferences, and and this will spark a debate. So this will be this will be fun. So people are going to be sitting around watching this, saying, "I totally agree with what he's saying," or "I totally disagree with <laughs> with what's being said right now." Um, but but if we're just looking at this idea that risk preference is stable and consistent and going to drive the decisions that we make, either in investing or distribution or whatever the case may be, I think we're failing to observe some of the things that are really important that may influence those preferences. And so I wanted to dig a little bit deeper and say, okay, well, risk preference is certainly a, a factor to consider. But if we consider more holistically what uh, affects an individual's risk preference, what are some of the areas that we still need to explore? Um, and so I thought that you know, psychology and personality um, was a natural uh, feed and connection to, to this idea that's been looked at for a really long time.
0: Sure. So understanding that your research had many hypotheses sort of listed, what were your initial thoughts going into this research project?
1: So we thought we would see something somewhat similar to the saving and spending literature as it relates to psychology and the results did sort of align with that. And so at a high level, we expected some of the personality traits that tended to associate with saving and controlled spending would be associated with lower portfolio withdrawal rates. Similarly, we thought emotions would follow a similar pattern. And it's interesting when you look at the research on positive emotions you find that there is causal evidence that experiencing positive emotions is connected to more more prudent spending a longer time horizon now there's some nuances such as extreme uh, exuberance and over optimism overconfidence some of those things can also trigger poor behavior but Uh, We expected to see a greater level of positive emotions linked to lower portfolio withdrawal rates and vice versa for negative emotions. And that's what we found. We also zeroed in on feelings of control and self-efficacy over a person's financial situation. And so the saving and spending literature suggests that those with a greater sense of control and influence over their financial life, in other words, financial self-efficacy, tend to have more controlled spending, they're savers, so we thought that that would also be connected to lower portfolio withdrawal rates in retirement, and that is what we found.
0: Dr. Browning, uh, any any sort of uh, follow-throughs and maybe how you were thinking about it when you started the project?
2: Hey, you just heard from the expert. Um, <laughs> no, I, I really do. We, we spent a lot of time talking about this, and you know, what, what would be a cool result? And, you know, what would add value to the literature? And so in developing the hypotheses, um, you know, a, a lot of that was based off of, again, you know, our combined expertise in this stuff. And, and, and the and the findings were pretty well consistent with, with expectations. And um, I learned a lot uh, about a field that I really had not been connected to uh, prior to, to the study and, and what a great person to work with and and Sarah and learn that from because I mean it was it was a phenomenal experience and, and yeah that's that that's a great summary Sarah thank you.
1: Oh, thank you and I agree I I had experienced portfolio withdrawal rates mostly from a practitioner perspective and sitting down and sitting across from clients and advising them and and helping them figure out how much is that at a pretty safe level but never once in those discussions really did we uh, come at it from the perspective of, well, who are you and what's your natural tendency? It was always driven by the advisor in terms of, here's what you should be doing. Um, So little discussions come up about how they spend and things like that, but never really focused on their sense of person personality who they are emotions and controls. so it was really neat for me to learn more from a research perspective from dr browning and, and dig into more on that side around theory around portfolio draw rates and things like that too
0: sure so how did you both go about getting information or data for this study i mean did you go to a, a, a retirement facility or two and and with a, a clipboard and and do some counseling sessions and then ask them for statements or how did you approach this
2: Yeah. So, so this is, this is a a tricky, a tricky thing. Um, And um, you know, so, so going back to to research that I've done in the past on um, just portfolio withdrawal, withdrawal rates and spending decisions, we use the health and retirement study, which is a nationally representative data set um, of older Americans. Right. And so the study has some really good questions uh, about um, demographics some really good questions about financial information on both the balance sheet and income statement side, and then some really good questions just on um, who these people are as individuals. Uh, and so it, it was a great, uh, a great data set for this study because we were able to take all that stuff from a singular place uh, and kind of do a complete evaluation based on the information that was available uh, through through the HRS. Now, I make it sound like it was a little bit easier (laughs) than than it is in practice, because, um, you know, when you start dealing with with these types of things, and and I think that that it's worth mentioning this for the audience, um, because, you know, I I wanna make sure that people that are hearing this have some perspective on where the results actually come from. Uh, And so, you know, we have imputed data that has to be created because some values are missing. Uh, We're using estimates based on what individuals self report in relation to their income and their assets and the value of those things. Um, But when it all comes together, we kind of get this whole picture of what a a respondent's financial situation looks like. And then we can then take that and extract from it, um, you know, general financial asset values and then how assets are being spent on an ongoing basis across time. Um, out of those financial assets to support lifestyle needs um, post-retirement. So secondary data makes your life way easier.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine it does. Uh, Dr. Acebedo, as, as our psychology expert here, you know, how do you feel about kind of using data points or hard data, kind of qu- quantitative material when you're thinking about the behavioral financial components?
1: I support it and I think it's a great place to start. And I do say to start because there is so much underlying data that that is missing when you just ask someone to complete a scale zero to seven or zero to ten or whatever to to mark where you are on a certain feeling of control or your emotions. Now those are pretty robust scales. We use measures that have been widely used in the health and retirement study is a uh, really well conducted survey study over time. And, and uh, the people who administer the survey do, do meet with people, they take great care to, to get high quality data. So it was the perfect data set for this. But I've done some work and I'm getting into more qualitative research as well, which is analyzing people's descriptions about how they feel about something. And what I'm learning there is that there's some really rich underlying explanations around, well, where does their feeling of control come from? What does that really look like and mean to them? And that's where you get some richer data that can be even more applicable to practice, but it's very hard to use large samples with qualitative data, uh, although it is possible. Um, so there's, there's pros and cons, but, uh, I support both. And I think you can get to a much deeper understanding with more qualitative data and seeing how people explain certain events.
0: Sure. So, you know, you, you go through this very large data set, you parse through it, you have to clean up the data and do a lot of different things like that. Uh, but let's just ask the, the really exciting question here. What were your findings?
1: So I think one of the main takeaways here is that even after controlling for many of the typical things that we would expect to be related to portfolio withdrawal rates, such as age being coupled in a couple relationship, uh, education, um, employment. We did include the whole sample of both working and non-working people in the health and retirement study, and we just accounted for we call it controlling for in an, ana- an analysis, the potential effect on portfolio withdrawal rates from people who are working. But because retirement today is so mixed between work and drawing from the portfolio and I've seen that in practice people often are doing a little side work or working part-time yet still drawing from the portfolio we wanted to capture those individuals in the analysis so we included them and controlled for the fact that we have people who are working we looked at and controlled for our homeowners uh, with a mortgage and without a mortgage. And a lot of the relationships that we expected to see there, we did see. And then above and beyond those more technical factors, we still found a relationship between the psychological characteristics that we were interested in and portfolio withdrawal rates. And I can go through each one of those if you want me to. It's kind of a uh, mouthful I can do it if we're ready for that but um, maybe Chris uh, Dr. Browning do you want to talk a little bit about what uh, of the findings some interesting things from your perspective
2: yeah I actually I'm gonna put it back on you sorry Sarah so so talk a little bit about because I mean here here's the truth Daniel um, Sarah was the statistical expert expert on on this study um, and, and really at the findings at the end of the day you know, you, you've got your dependent variable, which is your portfolio withdrawal rate. And on the other side of the equation, you've got your predictor variables, which really are, um, you know, your psychological factors in this analysis. And and so when we're looking at our predictors, we're looking at, at Sarah's expertise, but, but I think it'd be really cool, Sarah, if you would share kind of what some of the strongest um, uh, relationships we observed were, um, in spite of all of the the controls that we had um, that are are very prominent in in the existing literature related to portfolio withdrawal decisions.
1: Absolutely, so I think the strongest link that we found, and we looked at different layers of psychology, so it gets a little technical here, but um, I'll do my best to define. So we used a theoretical model that helped us understand that At the broadest sense of someone's psychological makeup, we can think of personality traits representing that really broad level of how people function, how they think, feel, and behave naturally across many life domains, whether it's finances or relationships or health or whatnot. So at that bottom level, we've got personality traits. We use the big five characteristics. So those are the ocean traits as the acronym. So openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. We use those classic big five traits at the bottom. At the next level of the, I guess, trait hierarchy, we use um, positive and negative emotions. So we go from broad traits to a little bit more narrow, but still not specific to finances. And then we looked at the uh, narrower trait that was in the financial domain. And we use financial self-efficacy, which is the sense of influence, control, and confidence over your ability to manage your money and and make decisions around your financial situation. So we connected each of these layers to this portfolio withdrawal rate outcome. And um, we expected to see a strong relationship between financial self-efficacy and portfolio withdrawal rates because it's within the finance domain. And we did. We saw that those with a higher sense of control, influence and confidence, aka financial self-efficacy, were connected to lower portfolio withdrawal rates. And and that, that I think is probably the most robust finding because we would say that had uh, probably the strongest direct effect with portfolio withdrawal rates. The other trait that had a really strong effect with portfolio withdrawal rates was conscientiousness. So this is a personality trait that Encompasses someone's natural tendency to set goals, follow through with tasks, pay attention to the details, etc. And um, that trait is robustly connected to saving behavior, controlled spending, and we saw that come through in this model that those with higher levels of conscientiousness had lower portfolio withdrawal rates. And that was the only trait other than financial self efficacy that had this direct connection with portfolio withdrawal rates. Everything else, we would say, was indirect, as in it ran through either or and emotions and financial self-efficacy to get to portfolio withdrawal rates. So conscientiousness and financial self-efficacy were the two big traits that were connected directly. Other than that, we had... or Go ahead.
0: Well, so so just trying to, to boil that down to maybe uh, something that as a practitioner, I w- how I would think about that or what I would look for in a client is, is sort of the takeaway on efficacy and conscientiousness that a client who was very deliberate about saving over time, building resources, Uh, Maxing their 401k setting goals, people who would engage a financial planner um, are then also most likely to be very cautious or controlled around their distribution and those who maybe are were later savers in life or people who just sort of took the employer default at the 401k. Um, or people who were you know maybe more likely to use credit cards or refinance their mortgage and keep switching houses and whatnot Pe- people who just sort of are less consistent about their planning are more likely to have higher distribution rates. Is that maybe a, a, a layperson's understanding of how that efficacy could translate?
1: Absolutely. I mean that's a really good summary and then the question therefore comes um, that we had to sort of contend with when we wrote the paper was, well is this good or bad is conscientious individuals and those with high financial self-efficacy having low portfolio draw rates, good or bad, what does that mean? And and we approached that from the perspective of, well, you can't really place a good or bad judgment or label on that. It really was within the context of what's possible for their portfolio. So, When we look at other theory and other literature, we see that from a mental accounting standpoint, it is hard to spend money that you've saved, like in a 401k and and, and other accounts. So it may very well be that those with high conscientiousness and high financial self-efficacy have a hard time and it's painful for them to spend from their portfolios in retirement. And from that perspective, I would say a low portfolio draw rate it's not good. They're not maximizing the potential of their money. So if it, if a low withdrawal rate results in foregoing life experiences in retirement, then, then you want to help clients obviously feel comfortable withdrawing a little more. And this research helps bring to light that they may be withdrawing a low amount because that's sort of how they're wired. And it's hard for them to pull money out because of their psychology and their makeup. So someone who has a high portfolio withdrawal rate, if it is within the bounds of a safe portfolio withdrawal rate for them and their situation, then that's a good thing. They're maximizing their money.
0: Sure. Dr. Browning, were there maybe any sort of surprise takeaways or things that just defied what your expectations were?
2: You know, I'll, I'll just kind of extend on, on what Dr. Acevedo was just talking about. It really got me thinking, and, and she, she almost took the words out of my mouth of good versus bad. We don't know. That's not what this study um, really looked at. Um, you know, is this appropriate or inappropriate? Uh, and I think that's where people want to take it so many times uh, when they're reading it is, well, you know, I, I can tag one behavior as positive and one behavior as negative and blanket that across the board. Um, but, but we did some, some follow-up research um, using an independent study um, that was related to this as we were going through, going through this process. And really what it kind of looked at was, okay, well, you know, if we've got these innate personality characteristics that affect the way that we make decisions, then now let me dig a little bit deeper with some more direct questions about how you do think about that retirement money. You know, Dr. Acevedo mentioned mental accounting and how we think about different buckets of money in, in different ways. And so some of the questions that we looked at in, in that research are, you know, it, it makes me feel uncomfortable, yes or no, to spend money on my, uh, on my retirement goals um, out of my retirement portfolio, even if I save that money for that purpose. Um, and, and a lot of respondents came back with a resounding, yes, it makes me feel uncomfortable uh, to do that. And so you know, we talk to people and we know that people are are consistent in their personality characteristics across time based on what we've observed in the literature. And so, you know, we say, do this, reinforce this behavior, develop this habit that's associated with this characteristic and now change it, right? And now change it. And so, um, you know, Dr. Acevedo makes a great point. And I don't want to get ahead of myself because I know you're probably saying, well, what's next, right? What's, what's the next extension of, of this research? But, but really briefly, not to go too far, I think we got to look more at um, now that we have the knowledge that this might be something we want to assess in relation to the makeup of our clients. Um, now that we have some idea of how to... Um, uh, judge what we obsess when we, when we gather this data, right? Like if I find out so-and-so about someone's personality, how might that affect it and how can I overlay that on what they're actually doing with their money? Um, then to say, okay, well, emotionally, you know, how are how you doing with this? And emotionally, are you handling this in a rational way? Or are more subjective things entering into the equation, that are maybe having a negative impact on the decisions that you're making with regards to the maximization of your overall satisfaction from your resources. So I think that there's still a long way to go on this and there's still a lot of really interesting questions to ask. Um, but, but I do think that's probably you know kind of kind of some of the next steps.
0: Sure. Well, so not, not to have you take the words out of my mouth here, but uh, Dr. Acevedo, where, where do you think it should go or what what is sort of your next project in line with this research?
1: So I love that direction that uh, Dr. Browning laid out and when I look at this as well I think of the household and the family unit. So we conducted the study based on the financial respondent to the survey. Well how the financial respondent approaches things may be different than their spouse. So within couples how does the combined personality, I guess, of the household, when you consider the, the personality traits of both people, how does that combine to then in interact with and produce behavior? So I think it'd be interesting to see, for example, if you have a uh, more neurotic uh, financial respondent, the person completing the financial portion of the survey with a spouse who is has a lower level of neuroticism, higher conscientiousness, how, how, how does that interact together to maybe temper the neuroticism and, and encourage more controlled spending or vice versa? So also the extent to which couples agree uh, around their goals and the way they spend money in retirement can also have a big effect. So I think there's a lot of work still to do within the context of couples and a, a combined household unit. Also, looking at this over time, this study just captured a single point in time in terms of the portfolio withdrawal rate, but uh, we all know that Portfolio withdrawal rates, uh, to really look at them fully, you have to look at the trend and the history because any one year, you could have a really high portfolio withdrawal rate, right? because you did a remodel to the house or you bought a car, but over time that levels out. So from a, the, the perspective of tracking portfolio withdrawal rates over time, it makes sense to look at a longitudinal study, examining what that looks like.
0: I'm curious to know, and this is maybe a little bit off the beaten path of, of the research itself, but somewhat related to where it's going. Do you think there's maybe a, a purpose or a place for something like a replication of the study or a, a version two that accounts for something like uh, money scripts concepts or uh, those sorts of studies? Or do you, did you consider that in this study already and, and maybe not, not deploy it for some reason?
1: So that's a really good question. We approached this study from the perspective of we didn't really see anything that's been done yet within the psychology area, especially that looked at innate characteristics. So it just makes sense to start with personality and then traits that were connected to that and specific to finances like financial self-efficacy. But And that that was a big model in and of itself. So a it really didn't make sense to just start throwing in more psychological constructs. We had a pretty tight framework with our theory and the way we layered uh, these traits so And we did that to establish at the most fundamental level, this is what we see based on an individual, who they are, and how that connects to portfolio withdrawal rates. And our goal was to sort of spark an interest in doing more research in this area, such as what you mentioned, looking at money scripts and how those money scripts and stories we tell ourselves about money often subconsciously connect to what we do with it. And I've not seen that done in the portfolio withdrawal rate space yet, and I think it would be a great study to do.
0: Dr. Browning, your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit off the beaten path to, to your question and 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 just touch something that, that I kind of touched on a, a little bit earlier. I, w- I was at a conference early on in my, my academic career, and, and the paper being presented at the conference was around um, risk preference and portfolio allocations. And and basically, it was looking at this idea that. Um, Portfolio allocations changed for a lot of households um, for or, or during the great recession and After accounting for the effect of changes in market values, people changed their portfolio allocation um, actively in the decisions that they made with regards to how they held held their assets and so the researcher was presenting this idea is like, well. Risk preferences may not be stable, and the evidence from this research shows that um, at least the way we're capturing risk preference in a lot of these risk tolerance questionnaires um, shows that those preferences changed uh, as the markets changed, and therefore that led to potentially uh, a change in behavior. You always got to be a little bit careful when you get causal um, in the way that, that you describe things, but there was at least a relationship uh observed in the paper and 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 one of the people in the audience posed the question well if risk preferences aren't stable then how on earth are we ever going to meet our compliance requirements and how we tell our clients what to do if they're constantly changing how do we account for that as practitioners and i think we might be on to something with with the personality Um, characteristics and how they relate to the decisions that people make with their money as a more stable predictor of how people are going to respond to different things. And so, you know, back to your question now uh, to to some extent is, is I think it would be really interesting to go back and see uh, in the existing literature, you know, just what's the stability of personality traits And what's the stability of personality traits as it relates to financial decisions, like saving, like borrowing, those things that have been looked at more historically uh, by researchers in the past. And then overlay that on top of, okay, well, well let's look at the consistency of portfolio withdrawal rates after we've established a baseline of consistency with regards to personality characteristics. And if you see some of the same things with that, as you do in uh, some of the other financial behaviors, I think we might be able to, you know, really give the recommendation to the planning community that as we go in and assess these different things about our clients, this needs to be part of that process. And and I I think we see the profession moving in that direction, right? As, As more and more people start to bring on AFCs or people with financial counseling expertise as part of their team, in working with the clients that they have to reach their financial goals. I think that this kind of fits that mold really well because it addresses the issue that how people think about money, their experiences with money, how those affect the habits that they have, and in terms of decisions that they make is all interconnected and relevant to how we manage that relationship with regards to the goals that the client is pursuing.
0: Sure. So I think you've both given a couple examples of this already, but I'm, I'm going to put the golden question out there. You know, I'm, I'm a financial planning practitioner. Um, most people who do this are practitioners or students who are going to be practicing soon with your research in hand or in mind, what's the big takeaway? What can I do with my clients today, knowing what we know now because of this research?
1: It's a good question. And I'll start by saying that an eye-opening experience for me was when i started looking at personality and financial behavior and related behaviors i there there's a robust set of research that provides evidence that personality can consistently predict what people are going to do now for any individual person that can vary a little bit so it's on the averages in the in the data but there are definitely trends around The way people function and behave as it relates to who they innately are and also financial self-efficacy is pretty robust, too. So I think this combined with the broader research on on personality is to highlight that it really matters and it's it makes just makes sense to understand who your clients are and I know financial planners say well I know who my client is but do you really have you asked the questions you could do a personality assessment and I think a personality assessment is a is a great place to start because it's it it's non-threatening to a client so you you just say you know I want to learn who you are we do this personality assessment and it helps us understand a little bit and then you have a conversation so tell me how in what ways conscientiousness shows up in your life, and then you get a sense of how they might budget and pay attention to their money. Tell me a little bit about neuroticism and and where you see that popping up for you. Um, Agreeableness is a fun one too. Like, do you ever feel like you cannot say no, like when your child wants money or charities or things like that. So we we see that a lot in financial planning and it's hard to maybe break those financial ties sometimes. Well, that could be partially due to personality. So specifically within portfolio draw rates, it's just interesting to see that who people are carries through to this domain as well. And it's strong enough that when you're giving, you know, objective, rational advice, you need to think about, well, the person sitting on the other side of that may take my advice and based on who they are, may vary a little bit in how they implement it because of the natural forces driving their behavior. And the last thing I say is there there is literature around the stability of personality traits. And what's really neat is that personality traits are shown to be relatively stable over time, but not so stable such that they cannot be changed. So I'm not saying you can just change your personality and who you are, but you can help clients recognize where their natural tendency to think, feel, and behave, AKA personality, might be getting in the way of their financial goals, such as agreeableness, for example, that could be partially behind over gifting to a child or charity or whatnot or a friend and helping the clients see that and become more aware of it can help them make adjustments or at least pause before making a decision and talking to you as the advisor in order to, to steer them on a better path.
2: Yeah, I I think that, um, I'm in a complete agreement, you know, another area I think, and I'm not a practitioner, so let let me, let me qualify this and all previous statements as part of this, as part of this podcast is that I'm an academic. So, um, you know, th- this this statement is not to assume that financial planners don't already do this. But, but here's, here's, what the, here's what the data shows, uh, is with regards to um, retirement spending decisions, is that there, this is a new phase for people, right? We all know that. Um, and I think there's probably some variation in how people feel about moving from phase A to phase B. And so we might have had a client relationship for many years and had great success with that client, that client's had great success uh, with with our services, but the, the assumption can't be that because this client has acted in a rational way in the past, that they'll continue to act in a perfectly rational way moving forward because there's this huge psychological change obviously that takes place as we exit the labor force um, and become completely dependent to some extent on uh, uh, the financial resources that we've accumulated, right? There's there's this floor that just dropped out underneath us. And so, you know, acknowledging that and acknowledging how uh, personality characteristics can help us bridge the gap between maybe what appears to be a change in behavior uh, and recognize it as consistent behavior uh, across the changes in the life cycle. Um, and I, I think if we can do that, we can better educate, right? Um, you know, I, I'm in the business of, of doing education, but all professional financial planners and advisors are in that same business with regards to their clients. So uh, to echo what, what Dr. Acevedo said, Helping the client understand why they feel the way they feel as part of the process of overcoming that to implement the recommendations more comfortably to achieve the things that they really value the most out of their money. Um, you know, I, I think that's, that's maybe, um, again, from an academic's perspective, the greatest uh, um, loss to the consumer is to forego consumption in both periods if it could have been avoided or vice versa, right? To overconsume in one period and not be able to enjoy the lifestyle that you would want to enjoy uh, later in life. And so, um, you know, if if we're talking about these things and I'll just go on the low end as an example, right? Where someone has uh, uh, um, a less aggressive portfolio withdrawal rate. Well, I had to forego something to accumulate the resources pre-retirement And I want to make sure that client doesn't forego again in relation to what their financial goals are uh, moving forward because of uh, something that could be overcome if we help them better understand what was causing them to feel the way that they feel and assuring them that um, there is some some safety and benefit to to pushing forward with uh, what you've planned for uh, up to that point.
0: Well, Dr. Browning, Dr. Acevedo, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, It was really a pleasure to have you both.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank Thank you so much for having us.